Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 221, The Monster with 21 Faces. This week, I want to take a foray out of our usual territory and into something that we don't talk about all that often on the show, true crime. Our story this week begins with a man named Izaki Katsuhisa, CEO of Izaki Glico Corporation. The shared last name will clue you on to something right away. This is a family business dating back to 1910, when the founder, Izaki Riichi, had found a way to make candy from something called glycogen that he had extracted from an oyster, hence the name of the company, Izaki from the family name, Glico from glycogen. By 1984, when our story starts, the company was famous less for oyster candy and more for things like its chocolate-covered pretzel sticks, called Pocky. However, this is not really the fun and light-hearted story of a candy company, because we began at 9pm Japan time on March 18, 1984, when two men forced their way into CEO Izaki Katsuhisa's home. Both men had firearms, a pistol and a rifle, respectively, which is very unusual for street crime in Japan. Japan has extremely tough gun laws. Practically the only way for a civilian to even own a firearm is for it to be passed down within a family, and that's pretty uncommon. The fact that they had guns is an immediate clue that these were not just your regular street criminals. Getting them required some connections and substantial organization. That organization was on display in the way they approached Izaki's home. First, they hit the residence next door, which Izaki, good Japanese boy that he was, had purchased for his mother. The two men broke into the home, bound Izaki's mother so she couldn't go for help, though she wasn't hurt, and took her spare key to the main Izaki house. As a result, they didn't have to break the door to Izaki Katsuhisa's home down or anything like that, they just let themselves right in. Once inside, the two men were able to immediately grab Izaki's wife and one of his three children. Like his mother, they were bound and left behind. They also cut the home's telephone lines, so that even if their prisoners broke free, they would still have to run for help rather than calling for it. Izaki himself, hearing the commotion, locked himself in his own bathroom with his two other children. Conveniently, he was already in there because he'd been taking a bath. With the attackers outside, Izaki then attempted to negotiate, figuring that he was being robbed. However, the negotiation attempt was refused. Instead, the attackers broke down the door, grabbed Izaki, but not his kids, and left the premises. They didn't even give him time to get dressed. He was buck naked when he was kidnapped. And so it was that the CEO of Japan's premier candy company got snatched in the middle of the night. The very next day, the director of the company received a ransom demand. For 1 billion yen, about 4.2 million dollars US at the time, or a little under 10 million today, and 100 kilograms of gold bullion, Izaki would be freed. The company, eager to get its CEO back, and presumably not looking forward to the kind of bad publicity that would come from him being killed, promptly began planning to pay the ransom. However, as it turns out, they need not have bothered. Three days after his kidnapping, Izaki was able to slip his bonds. He was not held under direct guard and was thus able to escape the building where he was being held, which turned out to be an abandoned warehouse in Ibaraki City, not far from Takatsuki City, where Glico's offices are located. 
both cities, by the way, being a part of Osaka Prefecture. So the ransom deal fell through. There was nothing left to ransom. However, the men involved were clearly not done with Glico. A bit over two weeks after Izaki managed to free himself, a firebomb went off at Glico's trial production facility, destroying three cars from the company fleet. Six days later, police in Ibaraki found a plastic drum containing a large amount of hydrochloric acid and a letter threatening Glico with further sabotage. Now here's where things get a little weird. On May 10th, Glico received the first in a series of letters from the perpetrators of all these incidents. The letters threatened the company with more attacks, and interspersed the threats with attacks on Glico's perceived corruption as a company, which, according to the author, justified this campaign of corporate extortion. What's truly unusual about these letters is how they were signed, by someone calling himself Kaijin Nijuichi Menzel, which roughly translates as the Phantom with 21 Faces, or the Monster with 21 Faces. The name is a reference to one of Japan's most famous series of detective novels written by the Arthur Conan Doyle of Japan, Edogawa Rampo. Edogawa's true crime novels, published in the two decades after World War II, revolve around his main character and, at least in my opinion, obvious Sherlock Holmes stand-in, Akechi Goro, and his youthful allies, the Boys Detectives Club, also an obvious stand-in for Sherlock Holmes' intelligence network, the Baker Street Irregulars. Akechi's chief antagonist is a shadowy figure who is definitely not Dr. Moriarty, who calls himself only the monster with 21 faces. I'm being a bit unfair to Edgar Rampo here, he definitely does borrow ideas from Sherlock Holmes, but who hasn't? The books are iconic as hell, and there's plenty to recommend for Edogawa specifically, his stories are very creative. But yeah, in the end, the real-life Japanese police were dealing with a real-life network of criminals who were apparently also very concerned with showing off their detective novel fandom. However, it wasn't all fan tributes to detective novels. In the letters to Glico, the monster with 21 faces claimed to have laced a large number of Glico products with potassium cyanide, which, for those of you who are not super up on your poisons, is very toxic and will kill the hell out of you, and also smells like almonds, apparently. Now, there wasn't any actual proof that actual candy was laced with actual potassium cyanide on the market somewhere, but the news leaked to the public, which meant that Glico really only had one play it could make. A massive product recall by Glico yanked about $21 million of candy from store shelves, as the company pulled pretty much everything that had been produced from the time of the original kidnapping in order to make sure that no poisoned candy would hit the streets. With some rough inflation calculations, you're looking at about $54 million in modern U.S. dollars, and, of course, the news caused Glico's stock price to take a severe beating in the exchange. Glico also launched an investigation that resulted in the mass firing of 450 temporary workers, either for negligence that could potentially have allowed someone to tamper with the candy, or because they weren't sure of the loyalties of those temps, or frankly because $21 million was not an insubstantial chunk of change, and some jobs had to be cut to salvage the company's finances. The yanked merchandise and associated losses didn't seem to appease the monster with 21 faces. 
In letters written to the police, the group announced their intent to simply distribute poison candy on their own. A few days later, a security camera at a convenience store in Osaka did capture an image of a man placing Glico candy on a store shelf, presumably poisoned candy. However, the man was wearing a baseball cap, with the logo of the Yomiuri Giants on it. The Giants are the J-League equivalent of the New York Yankees, a franchise so incredibly popular that you see their caps basically everywhere. As a result, his face was too covered up to make out, and the cap didn't really give much away. Around this time, the Monster with 21 Faces also began releasing letters publicly, taunting both Glico and the police trying to investigate them. The letters, incidentally, were written in Osaka dialect. That, along with the fact that the first target had been Ozaki himself, who lived in Osaka Prefecture, seemed to suggest that the area was the home base of the monster. In true supervillain fashion, many of the letters began offering hints to the police, claiming that the cops needed help in order to catch them. In reference to the claimed poisoning, for example, the group wrote, quote, Why don't you keep it to yourself? You seem to be at a loss, so why not let us help you? We'll give you a clue. We entered the factory, to poison the candy, by the front gate. The typewriter we use is a pond writer. The plastic container we used was a piece of street garbage, end quote. Even with the clues, the police couldn't catch the monster, and for about two months, Glico was hammered by this negative publicity, as its sales and its stock prices both plummeted. However, in late June, the monster with 21 faces released a new letter, leading with the phrase, we forgive Glico. In fact, that was the only thing in the letter. It simply said, we forgive Glico, and provided no details for why Glico had been targeted in the first place. Instead, in a separate letter, the monster with 21 faces set its sights on a new candy company, Morinaga and Company, a Tokyo-based chocolate company. Morinaga, among other things, was the company that first popularized a uniquely Japanese spin on a Western holiday. They were the ones who used advertising campaigns in the 1960s to promote the idea that on Valentine's Day, women should give the men in their lives chocolate. They helped bolster the tradition one month later of men returning the favor on Japan's bonus Valentine's Day called White Day. Like several other Japanese spins on Western traditions, think the Christmas chicken buckets that KFC popularized, this tradition grew out of an advertising campaign suggesting that this was how Westerners observed the holiday. Even though Japan is now cosmopolitan enough for most Japanese to know this is not true, the tradition has stuck. So yeah, a company of not insubstantial influence for the monster to target. Also on the hit list was Marudai Ham, which sells, you know, ham, and House Foods, which sells popular pre-made curry mixes as well as the Japanese soft drink Ramune. Marudai settled almost immediately, caving into demands from the monster with 21 faces for a hefty but not bank-breaking sum, 50 million yen, or about $210,000 in 1984 currency, so about half mil today. On June 28th, two days after Marodai settled with the monster, the company received instructions. It was to send one of its employees to the Osaka train station to toss the money into a train bound for Kyoto that would be marked with the kind of white flag that train workers use when electronic signaling equipment breaks down. 
The Marudai employee did just that, and an Osaka police detective watched him do it and got on the train. However, even before he made it on the train, the investigator reported that he was being observed by a tall man wearing sunglasses with short-cut hair permed in the style that was inexplicably popular in 1980s Japan with, quote, eyes like those of a fox. The man was thus nicknamed the Fox-Eyed Man. The Fox-Eyed Man boarded the train with the money, then disembarked at a station in Osaka, Takatsuki Station, and re-embarked another train headed for Kyoto. Kyoto police found him at the station, but when they attempted to tail him, he gave them the shake. The fox-eyed man quickly jumped to the top of the suspect list for the ringleaders of the monster with 21 faces, but of course that suspicion was useless because fox-eyed man is a nickname, and his most distinguishing characteristic read like something from an at-best middling work of poetry. In the meantime, Marudai, having paid the ransom, was out of the crosshairs, House Foods and Morinaga were not. Also in late June, the monster with 21 faces sent out a new letter, stating that it had poisoned 21 batches of Morinaga candy. Police, clued into what to look for, were able to inspect and locate several poisoned Morinaga products before those products made it into the hand of consumers. Though, in a likely coincidence that still probably freaked him out a bit, one batch of poisoned Morinaga candy did make it to the convenience store less than 40 meters from the front door of Izaki Katsuhisa's home. Not gonna lie, if I was him, I'd never eat a bar of candy again in my life. Now here's the thing, though. Locating those poisoned candies, though it did require some police work, was made quite easier by the fact that each of the 21 poisoned batches was labeled, Warning, Contains Toxins. Reading between the lines, it seemed that the monster with 21 faces didn't want anyone to actually eat the candy and be poisoned, because, you know, who would eat a piece of candy that said on the label that it's poisoned? Apparently, they were trying to prevent actual deaths in relation to their war with Morinaga. The kidnapping of Izaki seems to support that. His family was threatened with guns, but those guns were never used. However, despite the labeling of the poisoned products and the fact that all of them were caught, Morinaga still took a bad financial hit from lost sales in the summer of 1984. The harassment and threats continued through the summer and into the fall. In particular, it was in October of 1984 that the monster published one of their more unusual letters. It was addressed to the mothers of Japan and asked the nation's mothers to protect their children from candy purchases, while also stating that 20 more poisoned packages were out there. Police located 10 of them, the other 10, if they ever existed or went into distribution, were never found, but nobody died. The next month, police got what was supposed to be another big break in the case. House Foods, the curry manufacturer, gave in to the monster with 21 faces and agreed to pay its own half million dollars of ransom money, about one million dollars today. Police planned to seize the opportunity. They would tail the bagman for the money, watch the point where it was dropped, and either arrest whoever picked it up, or tail them in turn and hope to find their base of operations. The drop point was just off one of Japan's major highways, the Meishin Expressway, at a rest area in the city of Otsu, near Lake Biwa. The bagman for house foods was supposed to find a can under a white piece of cloth at the rest area and leave the money in there. 
Police from six prefectures coordinated on this bust, which was supposed to break the case wide open. This was going to be it. Except that when the bagman arrived, he found the white cloth, but no can. Police assumed that either they had been made, the pickup man had spotted them and had canceled the drop, or that far more likely the whole thing had been a test, with the monster with 21 faces fully aware that the cops would likely be watching the drop point and planning the whole thing as a test of police response rather than a serious attempt to collect a ransom. That test theory was the dominant explanation, until a terrible coincidence came to light. One hour before the drop, a prefectural cop unaffiliated with the operation was doing a regular patrol of the area when he spotted a parked white station wagon with its lights and engines off and a man inside. Thinking the whole thing suspicious, the patrolman investigated and saw the driver's face. A perfect match, as it turned out, for the fox-eyed man, with a radio receiver and headphones on, probably a police band scanner. The fox-eyed man, of course, immediately threw on his engine and bugged out of there, with the cop, who had gotten out of the car to investigate, unable to pursue. The station wagon, which had been stolen, and the receiver were both found abandoned at a train station not far away. By the time 1984 became 1985, no real progress on the case had been made, and the monster had expanded his target list, putting the national confectionery chain Fujia in his sights with yet more threats. However, the police eventually came across something that looked very much like another break in the case. By now, the case had received national attention and had become something of a media circus, and Japan's National Police Agency was determined to put a stop to it. The NPA, unlike, say, the American FBI, is not an operational group in its own right. There's not really any such thing as an NPA agent who goes out into the field. Instead, the NPA coordinates between local law enforcement divisions and sets general standards of practice. However, in an emergency, which this qualified as, it was authorized to assume direct control of an investigation. The NPA assumed authority over the investigation into the monster with 21 faces, and began digging into anything and everything that could be considered even tangentially relevant to the case. Early on, they were confident, and with good reason. The NPA had never once failed to get its man after assuming command of a case. Ever. And it seemed like the streak was going to continue, because the NPA came across the story of one Miyazaki Manabu. Miyazaki was a dissident Marxist who had been part of the 1960s student movement, though he'd since moved on from full-time activism and instead ran his family's demolition business in Kyoto. That business, however, served a utility far more important than just knocking down buildings. It was a money-laundering front for his father's real business as a mid-ranking Yakuza. Miyazaki's social activism was unusual for the child of a Yakuza. Japanese organized crime tends to lean towards the ultra-right, not the ultra-left. However, Miyazaki's family clearly accepted him since they let him run the demolition business. More importantly, in the 1970s, activist Izaki had gone after Izaki Glico for violating some of Japan's union laws, and went after Glico's own corporate union for shady accounting, leading to the resignation of the union leader. Remember that in Japan, unions are organized at a corporate level, 
rather than among members of a specific job sector. According to NPA investigators, denouncements of Glico written by Miyazaki during the 1970s bore a linguistic resemblance to some of the letters of the monster with 21 faces. The NPA arrested both Miyazaki and some of his Yakuza family members, but before too long, the NPA's slam dunk hit a snag, or whatever it is a failed slam dunk does, I don't watch basketball, thanks to the fate of the Supersonics. Miyazaki himself, according to the NPA's story, was supposed to be the fox-eyed man. There was kind of a resemblance between artist sketches and Miyazaki himself. But Miyazaki and all his relatives happened to have alibis that cleared them during the two occasions when the location of the fox-eyed man was known, during the train money drop and the botched Otsu sting. Miyazaki was eventually released, and has gone on to live an interesting life as a social critic. His autobiography is available in English, and is quite well-reviewed, though I haven't had a chance to read it myself. So now the police were left with no viable suspects, no real end to the crime wave in sight, and not much hope. By this point, the story was a national scandal, with the police in particular coming in for heavy criticism in the Japanese media. Japan was and is supposed to be one of the safest societies on Earth, with a very low crime rate and violent crime in particular being basically non-existent. To be fair, those crime rates do not factor in white-collar crime. In August 1984, one of the leaders of the investigation, Superintendent of Shiga Prefecture Police Yamamoto Shoji, couldn't take it anymore. In particular, he felt a profound sense of failure because it had been one of his beat cops who accidentally blew up the Otsu Sting operation. Without that failure, maybe this whole thing would be over. Driven to despair by his mistake, he locked himself in his office and set himself on fire, burning to death before he could be rescued. The first actual death associated with the case sent shockwaves through the country. Five days later, the monster with 21 faces responded in a letter. Quote, Yamamoto of Shiga Prefecture died. How stupid of him. We've got no friends or secret hiding places in Shiga. It's Yoshino or Shikata, police superintendents from different prefectures, who should have died. What have they been doing for as long as one year and five months? Don't let bad guys like us get away with it. There are many more fools who want to copy us. No career Yamamoto died like a man. So we decide to give our condolences. We decided to forget about torturing food-making companies. If anyone blackmails any of the food-making companies, it's not us, but someone copying us. We are bad guys. That means we've got to do more than bullying companies. It's fun to lead a bad man's life. Signed, The Monster with 21 Faces, end quote. And that was it. That was the last letter and the last anyone heard from the monster. In 1995, the statute of limitations on Izaki Katsuhisa's kidnapping expired. In 2000, the statute of limitations on the corporate extortion cases expired, and the NPA, despite having interviewed 12,000 different witnesses and combed over mountains of evidence, was forced to admit defeat in a case for the very first time. The monster with 21 faces, whoever they were, are still at large today. There have been, of course, many theories about what the monster really was. 
Some suggest the fact that the groups targeted corporations was proof of Marxist sympathies, and that the monster with 21 faces was some kind of survival of the old militant Marxist movements like the United Red Army of the 1970s. I don't buy this one, personally. Going after corporations fits, but Marxists would expand their target list out to the wider bourgeois society that supported them, rather than focusing specifically on corporations and specifically a single industry. Yet another theory has to do with a seemingly unrelated event, a gang war that began openly in 1985 but which had been simmering a bit before that, between the massive Yamaguchi Gumi and a splinter group called the Ichiwakai. The gang war shocked Japan. Like the rise of the monster with 21 faces, it seemed to suggest that Japan was not as safe a society as it had once seemed to be. This was, by the way, also the same gang war where some of the members went to Hawaii to buy weapons in exchange for amphetamines and were busted by the FBI and then managed to escape conviction through semantics. The theory goes that one side in the war used corporate extortion to build up their war chest. Gang warfare, after all, is not cheap. Yet another theory is that the whole thing was the work of either Chinese or more likely North Korean agents looking to make a little cash while destabilizing a regional rival. Certainly in the Chinese case that seems a bit far-fetched, but North Korea's definitely done some shady stuff in Japan. The final theory, which I really like because of its sheer deviousness, is that this was all corporate sabotage by financial speculators to make the stocks of these companies crash so that it could be bought on the cheap and resold once it recovered. In the end, nobody really knows, and nobody ever will, barring a confession from someone involved. So other than the fact that it's a rip-roaring good mystery, why bother with the story? Well first, it does have a big impact on Japanese national culture. The case fits in with a broader trend of the 1980s, with the sheen of success of post-war Japan beginning to come off. Throughout the 70s and into the 80s, a national sense of optimism in the revived nature of modern Japan pervaded the whole country, but cases like this, and the Yamaichi War, and the ongoing corporate and governmental corruption scandals that seemed to hit Japan like every other week from the 80s through the 90s, all of it seemed to undermine confidence in that old Japan. Maybe post-war Japan wasn't the perfect society after all. The monster with 21 faces also became something of an archetype for Japanese popular culture. A secretive group of criminals who flummox the police at every turn, and who imbue their crime with some kind of social criticism. What's not to love about that? The archetype has been used in many places in Japanese pop culture, most recently, to my knowledge, as the basis for the Phantom Thieves of Hearts in the game Persona 5. Its most famous iteration, however, comes from the 1990s. That sense of disillusionment with post-war Japanese society found its expression in the popular culture of the 90s, and in particular, one genre is very well suited to expressing that kind of disillusionment, cyberpunk. Think Blade Runner, if you haven't heard the term before. Japan's greatest cyberpunk franchise, Ghost in the Shell, was born out of that 1990s disillusion and the villain of that show's first season was a mysterious group of criminals known as the Laughing Man, based directly on the monster with 21 faces. 
In the end, far more than their crimes, which are still fascinating, that's what really matters about the monster with 21 faces. They were the expression of the same idea that Ghost in the Shell brought to the forefront, that maybe Japan's post-war society was not the perfect place it had once optimistically been suggested to be. Maybe, just maybe, there was still some darkness there, even if the people pointing out that darkness were just as much a part of it as the ones benefiting most from it. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for our final episode of 2017 on Tokugawa Tsunayoshi, Japan's famous dog shogun.